Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Yeah, somebody had their coffee. Nice job. So today we are kicking off a brand new sermon series on your favorite subject, you. We're going to be talking about you for the next couple of weeks. This isn't because I'm trying to pander and win your approval. This isn't some kind of skewed effort towards narcissism, but really we're going to be talking about you. We're going to be talking about ourselves over the next couple of weeks with a very specific goal in mind. And it's this idea that the more that we understand how God has made us, the more it frees us to understand and love how God has made others. Let me say that again just to make sure we're all on the same page this morning. The more that we understand how God has made us, the more we can understand and love how God has made other people. And we're really good at kind of spending effort and energy on the first half of that idea. We're really good at trying to understand ourselves. How many of you like to take personality tests? Like if you've got the one online that pops up and it's like, which Marvel character are you? And you're like, ooh, I want to know. Yeah. How many of you, show of hands, come on, this is church, you can be honest, a little, yeah, or which Disney princess you are, how many know which Disney princess you are, I'm Ariel, I don't know if it's the red hair, I don't know why, Ariel and Captain America are my two, maybe you don't kind of tend towards those tests, but you know uh, what your Myers-Briggs type is, yeah, you know about that, maybe you had to do that for work, ENTJ, that explains some things for you if you know about that, or maybe your disc profile, maybe that's the one you're more familiar with. Or maybe, you know, your, uh, your Enneagram number, We've, that's kind of in vogue right now is knowing about your Enneagram number. I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Any other threes in the house? Okay, just me, good. All right, me and Carl, awesome this morning. All right, Carl, solidarity, my man. Or maybe for you, you kind of, this isn't as cool anymore and it, it's a little passe, but your horoscope type, you know what you are, your horoscope, I'm a Leo as well. I promise I'm going to stop telling you all about my different personality test results. But really, we're really good at caring about who we are. We're really good at caring about and understanding more about ourselves. The problem comes is when we stop and we don't allow that knowledge to help us understand other people as well. Because really what happens in our relationships is as we go around, we begin to notice differences between ourselves and other people. This is really simple. Just sit, look at the person you're sitting next to. You can begin to identify, whether you have a close relationship with them or not, some of the differences about you and about them. Maybe you're a morning person. Maybe they're a night owl. Maybe you're an extrovert. Maybe you're an introvert. I was going to ask you to identify about those things, but I knew that if I asked the introverts to raise their hands, they wouldn't come back next Sunday. And so I just decided to leave that one and kind of go with the Disney princess, which we'll see if that worked better. But Really, we use these things to help us understand our world, because really what we're talking about in this series is kind of this broad umbrella term of personality, really the way that God has made you, the way that God has wired you. And personality isn't just the results on a test. It's not just about a list of preferences, but really when I use this word personality and when we use this word personality all throughout this series, what we're really talking about is how you process information about how the world works, how you understand that the way that things should be, the way that you take in information, the way that you process it, the way that you make decisions about the world as you're experiencing it in other people, and then the actions and the behaviors you take as a result. So this includes our values, our priorities, our motivations, the reasons that we do the things that we do, our inclinations behind our preferences. 
Another word for what we're going to try to accomplish over the course of this series is really just self-awareness. You know, emotional intelligence has kind of become, you know, popularized in, you know, kind of the workplace, which I think is a good thing because it used to just be focused on intellectual intelligence. Um, But as we begin to understand ourselves better, from a spiritual perspective, what we understand is it allows us to understand and thus love other people better. And there's a direct correlation all throughout Scripture between the quality of our relationships and our level of spiritual maturity and formation. Let me say it a different way. The way that you act in your relationships is, a, is an indicator light. It is a clue into the status and the state of your emotional and your spiritual health. Because as we see Jesus tell us, you can't love God and not have that same love affect the way that you love other people. Now let me caveat for a second, because what I'm not saying is if all of your relationships are good, that's the indicator that you and God are good. Because here's what we all know is true. We are 100% in control of 50% of our relationships. 100% is our responsibility. The other half, we're not in control of, and that's where the rub comes. That's what makes it difficult, is because we can't change other people. And we sure try, don't we? If we could just get the other person to do different things, our relationships would work better, wouldn't they? Now, here's what I know about the way that we, we try to do this. All of us, whether we're aware of it or not, we kind of have this bias in our relationships that I would like you more if you were more like me. Now, we say that opposites attract, but in reality, when we come up against the differences between us and other people, that's the spot that creates frictions. You say opposites attract, but I kind of think they react. That's really where the rub comes in, in our interpersonal conflicts, whether it's your family members or whether it's a romantic relationship or whether it's a professional relationship. It's where we don't agree on how the world works or we don't agree on what's most important in life or we don't agree on the way that we should respond to a certain situation These are the places where we have interpersonal and relational conflict. And our tendency, even though we're so focused on trying to have good relationships and we understand how important they are, our tendency is to want to fix the other person towards being more like us. My guess is you can think of an example, a close relationship. Maybe it's your your wife or your husband. Maybe it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or maybe it's a sibling. Whoever feels closest to you right now relationally, you can think of things that they do that bother you, that annoy you. The way that they sneeze, perhaps, that just kind of bothers you. It's like they sneeze like four times in a row. They don't just have one loud sneeze and get it all done, but they like, achoo, 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 you know, or something like that. It's like these little things that are different or about the way that, you know, they leave the dishes in the sink, but you grew up in a household where you weren't allowed to leave dishes in the sink because there was some connection between cleanliness and godliness. And if you left dishes in the sink, God was going to smite you in that moment. And so you were taught to put the dishes away, but they were taught that it's okay. And you just wait till they stack up and then you do them all together or heaven forbid, uh, the way that you load the dishwasher, because clearly there's a right way and a wrong way. And maybe you're in a relationship with somebody that has a very clear understanding of the right way to load the dishwasher. Or maybe you're in a relationship with somebody and they just come along behind you and redo everything that you do because you don't do it the way that they want you to do it. This all happens to us all the time because of the way that we're wired differently. And our assumption is that our way is oftentimes the right way. And so when we butt up against 
our differences with other people, what we think is, gosh, if you were just a little bit more like me, I'd like you more. Our relationship would go better if I could change you towards and conform you towards the way that I'm wired, the way that I understand the world. But the problem obviously occurs when we do that is we miss out on the fullness of who they are. We can't get past our own understanding of how the world's supposed to work, and so we become limited. Our world actually shrinks and reduces. We find that there's actually more relational conflict and disagreement when we try to make everybody into our image. And so I want us to look at a story this morning that maybe shows us why this is such a problem, and then I want to offer a couple of solutions about a different way that we can do this. Because really the goal is to begin to understand how we are, the ways that we tick, our preferences, our values, our motivations. And as we begin to become aware of that and the way that we understand how the world works, it should allow us to then pay attention, pay more attention, be more aware of the way that other people work. And as we begin to become aware of those differences, instead of attempting and wanting that knee-jerk reaction to fix people to be more like us, maybe it'll allow us to understand that there's value in the way that they approach the world, that we can learn from them, and that there's something uh, that allows us to love more like Christ when we can accept them and understand them and embrace them for who they are. So we're going to look at a passage out of the Gospel of Luke, and uh, if you want to play along at home, you can. Pull out your phones. I'll put it on the screen. If you brought your Bibles, you get bonus points. All two of you who did that this morning, it's all right. I don't know how it goes here, so, but you can pull out your phones. We're in the 10th chapter of Luke. The 38th verse, and uh, this is what we see happening. Jesus is engaged in his ministry. He's kind of walking around the Judean countryside, and he's teaching, and he's performing miracles, and he's healing people, and he's doing all of this incredible stuff. But along the way, Jesus builds relationships just like any one of us do. And in particular, what we see throughout the Gospels is there's a family that Jesus has a continuing set of interactions with, different vignettes all throughout the Gospels. Uh, And it's the home of Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus. This is Lazarus of Lazarus come forth fame. This is this same family that we see all throughout different points in the Gospels and the stories about Jesus' life. And so I want to look in particular at this specific story because I think it illustrates kind of our tendency. Now, my guess is if you've spent any time in church, you've grown up in church, this is a, maybe a familiar story. You know how this story ends already, and you know the conclusion that this story and the point that this story is making. But I want to challenge that for a moment, because I think beyond the kind of the black, white, right, wrong that we assume in this story, there's a whole lot more underneath that I think will be helpful for us today. So, This is what it says in verse 38, the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel. So as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, it's important that we note whose home it was. Whose home was it? Great, 100 so far. Good job. It is Martha's home, and she opens her home to Jesus. Now, this is just like anything that we would do when we invite people over to our home. There's a certain level of responsibility that we assume when we have guests into our home. It's kind of the same way we feel about Sunday mornings here at the church. When you are a guest, we feel like there's a certain responsibility we have to make sure that you're okay. And so you can imagine that Martha, this is maybe one of Martha's spiritual gifts. 
Martha is inclined to open her home to Jesus because she loves the, and she has the gift of hospitality. She loves taking care of people, attending to their needs. She's really good at anticipating and knowing what people need in the moment. And we'll see that this is a, the way that Martha is wired. And the way that Martha is wired isn't right or isn't wrong, but uh, in certain situations, it can be more or less helpful. Now, Martha has a sister. Verse 39, she has a sister who, called Mary. And Mary sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he had said. And then we kind of have this juxtaposition. But, this is the word they use, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And so you can imagine in this moment, maybe you've lived this scenario out in your life, not with Jesus in your home, although that'd be cool, uh, that you were getting ready to host a party, or you were having guests over, and one of you in the house was attending to all of the things that needed to be done, and you were making sure that everything was decorated and set out, that the food was ready, that you had all of the different types of food available for all of the different dietary restrictions that your guests had, and you had the plates, and you had the china out, and you had all of the decorations, and the napkins, you know, and the, and the linen napkins were pressed and ready for your guests, and all of the different stuff was ready, the playlist was on, and you were spending all of this time, effort, and energy making sure that your home was ready to receive and entertain your guests. And then you have the other one who's got the football game on or who's doing something in the garage and you don't know what they're doing or where they are or why they're not helping. I'm not trying to kind of gender stereotype this, but we know how this goes a little bit. And, and so what's happening in this story, though, is Martha spending all of this effort and energy getting the home ready for Jesus. Not because Martha's good and because Mary's bad, but because Martha is wired to express and communicate her love and care in that way. Many of you are wired in this same way. Mary is different. Mary, she's not concerned with making sure that the food's ready. She's not concerned with setting the table or helping inflate the balloons or string the streamers or whatever needs to be done to make sure that the home's ready for Jesus. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. And you can imagine the opportunity that's available for this family. Jesus, this man who seems to be miraculous in so many ways, who's teaching and performing miracles, healing people as crowds and throngs of people are gathered around him. He wants to come inside your home. It's an incredible audience that this family has. And so Mary takes full advantage of it. They're different in this way, Martha and Mary. And this is where the rub comes in their differences, not because one's good or one's bad, but because they're different. So Mary is at Jesus' feet. Martha is doing all the preparation, and you can imagine, you can place yourself in Martha's shoes. She's getting a little irritated. She's over there in the kitchen scrubbing the dishes, and she's looking over there at Mary, who's sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's kind of like starting to build this resentment and frustration with her sister because her sister's not helping her do any of the things that need to be done to make sure that the house is ready for Jesus, right? Right. So Martha, Martha's bold, and Martha goes over to Jesus, and she says to him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? This is a rhetorical question. It's an awkward question because Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And so Martha walks up to Jesus with Mary sitting there, doesn't direct it at Mary, but directs it to Jesus, and says, God, aren't, don't you think it's wrong? That she's not helping me get all of this ready? And then 
he sa- she says this to Jesus. Tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. Now, we know this scenario because my guess is there's been somebody in your life at some point that you've been in a relationship with. And they're frustrating for you. There's a lot of challenges in your relationship and maybe you've decided, all right, God, I'm going to take, take it to you in prayer. You're gracious and loving God. Thank you for the relationships that I have and in particular this particular person. Fix them! We want God to fix them because the way that they are isn't right, we say. But what we really want is, and what Martha wants, is Martha wants Jesus to make Mary more like Martha. We want God to make so-and-so more like us. Because the way that they are is different than the way that we are. And the way that we are, we have a bias towards, and we assume is right. And the reason that we have this bias, and the reason that we assume it's right, is because it aligns with our values. The way that we act and operate in the world, it aligns with our priorities. And it aligns with our motivations. My guess is you have some example of this in your own life, of how you feel emphatically that this is the right way to do things. And it might be the way that you grew up, the way that your parents taught you, or you came to this own conclusion because you evaluated all of the options of how to engage in this scenario, and you've determined that this seems to be the best choice in this scenario. But it's to you. It's based on your preferences, your priorities, your motivations. This has been one of the... the, honestly, the most challenging lessons uh, for me leading a church and leading a team of people. Uh, not because I always think that I'm right because it's my idea. It's because I feel like I've evaluated the options and empirically this seems to be the best course. And I can't for the life of me understand why nobody else seems to understand it the way that I understand it. How come you can't come to the same conclusion as me? Why don't you see things the way that I see them? It breaks my brain at times because I'm like, well, This should be obvious to you. Maybe you feel this way at times. You're like, I don't understand how somebody couldn't see that this is the right way to do it. Why isn't it obvious to you? And the reason it's not obvious to them is because they aren't you. We would like people more if they were more like us. But this is the problem with that. This is what happens when we get caught up in that course of trying to adjust and trying to change people and trying to get God to fix people to be more like us. Martha goes to Jesus, says, Lord, aren't you mad that she's not helping? Clearly, this is the right thing to be doing. This is aligned with my values, my motivations, my priorities. Surely, this is the right way to be. Tell her to help me. Because anytime we engage in a course of action in the world, we are confident we have God on our side, don't we? Our frustrations with the way that other people live and do things assumes that God agrees with us and not with them. But Martha's in for a surprise. And so this is what Jesus says to Martha. Martha's all worked up. She's frustrated. She's irritated by the way that Mary's acting in this moment. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Now, What I don't want you to do is to hear these words of Jesus and take it home to your marriage or relationship because I promise you the next time your significant other is upset and you look at them and you say, honey, honey, you are worried and upset about many things. 
It will not go for you the way that it went for Jesus. And you can't use as your defense, I'm just trying to be more Christ-like. It's not going to work. So leave that here, but understand that this is what Jesus does for Martha. He doesn't pity her. He doesn't belittle her. But what I think is interesting is he holds up a mirror for her to see herself, for her to gain a better understanding and awareness about the way that she's wired and how the way that she's wired isn't necessarily right. It's just the way that she's wired. And in certain scenarios, our personalities are assets. In other situations, our personalities can be liabilities. It just depends on the circumstance and the situation. And this is what Martha discovers in this moment. Jesus holds up this mirror and he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. You are distracted by all that you have going on, all of the things that you're caring about in this moment, they've taken and captured your attention. They've captured your focus. You've become consumed with the way that you think this should go, the way that other people should act and operate in this moment. But, and this is what he says, few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, well, the way that we often read this is Mary's good and Martha's bad. But I think that there's more to this story than just we should leave and go be a more like Mary. I think to me what this story illustrates is the way that sometimes our differences get in the way of experiencing other people. And in particular for Martha, when we get so consumed about trying to fix other people to be more like us, we miss out on the presence of Jesus, both in our lives and as it exists in other people. Think about the criticisms that you have over a particular person or relationship that, that, that you're engaged in. If you spend all of your time focusing on trying to fix them to be more like you, you have totally missed out on the way that God has made them like themselves. See, Jesus tells Martha that she has missed what was available in that moment. She has missed the opportunity before her. And Mary has chosen something better. Mary's chosen to be present. It doesn't mean that every choice that Mary has made in her life will forever be right, and every choice that Martha has made in her life will forever be wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying here. This is in this moment you've become distracted by what's not as important. You should focus on what is important. That's the presence of Christ in this moment and in the person that's available and across the table from you. And in Martha's case, it was her sister. And so I want to kind of walk us through in the rest of our time together just a couple of choices that we can make in our relationships that I think will help us, that will help us avoid this temptation to want to fix other people to be more like us, that I think will free us to understand ourselves better, to understand other people better, and then to love them more like Christ. So here's the first one. It's curiosity over criticism. I want us, I want you, I want me and our relationships when we come in contact with the way that somebody is different for, from us, the way that they aren't wired the way that we are, the way that they seem to be choosing something different than the way that we would choose, the way that they're acting different than the way that we would act, I'm asking you to choose curiosity over criticism. Because our knee-jerk reaction oftentimes in those moments is to react and to critique the way that somebody else is doing it in all the ways that it's different from the way that we would do it. We point out the ways that they could do it better, the ways that they should be doing it, and even if we don't identify it as such, it's oftentimes the ways that we 
would have done it. I was out the other day, and I heard a man on the phone, and he answers the phone, and he says, hello, and then there's this kind of like tough interaction. He's like, I told you not to do it that way. If you would have done it the way that I told you to do it, you wouldn't have screwed it up. Bye. Boom. Hangs up. And he noticed me noticing him. And as a defense, he goes, well, it's my wife. And I was like, I don't know. Hi, I'm a pastor. Nice to meet you. I don't know that that makes it any better. But I was, it's so interesting to me that when I spend time preparing for a sermon, I start to see all of these illustrations, often, unfortunately, in my own life. Fortunately, in this case, it was in his life about the way that his bias was towards the way that he would have done it. He was so focused on the right way to do it, which aligned with the way that he would have done it, that listen to the way that he treated the person that he's supposed to love and protect most with unkindness, with criticism, because he didn't have any curiosity as to why she made the choice that she made. So instead of beginning to attack, to react to the way that people act in that moment, what if you approached it with a softer posture? What if you approached it with a question mark? He said, hey, I noticed that you made a different choice uh, than I would have made. Can you tell me a little bit more about why it was important to you to do it that way? Or help me understand your thought process around this. Or what seems to be important to you about these things or about this idea or about this series of actions or behaviors. I would like to learn a little bit more from you about how you see this or about why this matters to you. Because here's what happens when you approach another person's differences with curiosity. It invites you into a conversation, into a deeper relationship. As opposed to building walls, it takes walls down and it draws you closer together. And if that feels like strange language, all you got to do is, hey, will you tell me a little bit more about that? Can you help me understand? I'd like to learn more from you. Can you just tell me a little bit more about why you've made that choice? It takes all of the animosity out of the interaction. It takes all of kind of the tension away, and it allows you to gain information, insight, awareness about how they're operated. And then maybe later in the conversation, it gives you the opportunity to share why it's important to you that it was done a different way because it builds a conversation. Now, what I don't want you to do is say, hey, will you tell me more about why you did it that way? Because I would have done, no, no, don't the because it, because that just justifies that they didn't do it the way that you wish that they would have done it. Just stop at the question mark. Why, why did you do it that way? Can you tell me more? That's the first thing that I want us to choose in our relationships. The second thing that I want us to choose is communication over contempt. Now, the reason that I want us to choose communication over contempt is because it is natural and normal for people's differences to frustrate us. I'm not saying that you can't ever be annoyed or irritated with the people in your lives and the choices that they make or the ways that they are different from you. That's not what we're saying. That's not even realistic. It's natural for you not always to agree with the way that somebody did something or the interaction or the beliefs or the values that they seem to be prioritizing over the ones that you hold. But what I want us to do is to begin to name it, to begin to start those conversations. And this builds off of that curiosity component. So as you approach them with curiosity, it allows you to begin to name, maybe it's a frustration. It's okay to say, hey, will you tell me more about why you did it that way? Uh, it, it's different than how I would have done it. And to be honest, I'm a little frustrated because I thought that we were in agreement about this. 
this begins to open up a line of dialogue. Because what happens when it doesn't get named is you hold on to it. And it's like a hot spot in your shoe or a pebble in your shoe. It just begins to rub. You begin to build a list of these things and the ways that people don't do it the way that you would do it or the ways that they annoy you. And it just rubs and it rubs and it rubs and it festers. And it begins to kind of poison you from the inside. And eventually it bubbles up and manifests contempt. And contempt is just this idea that somebody is subhuman. They're not worth the attention, the affection, the consideration, at least as much as you are. They're lesser than you. This is what happens. Dr. John Gottman is a marriage and family uh, therapist, and he's done a lot of research over the last kind of 40 years into the dynamics of marriages and relationships. And he has a pretty famous uh, study that has kind of drawn a lot of attention. And what he and his researchers did over a span of a couple of decades is they begin to videotape couples in their interactions with one another. And they got really, really good at cataloging and developing a taxonomy of all of the different emotions and interactions that couples have. And they begin to thin slice these segments of interactions. And they begin to ascribe labels and emotions uh, that the couple was engaging in in those moments. And over the course of their research, not only did they catalog these interactions with the couples, but they tracked them, you know, for about two decades. And so they kind of have this catalog and this database of information about not only how these couples interacted over a period of time, but whether or not these couples stayed together. And these researchers got so good at being able to identify the emotions present in a conversation or in an interaction that they began to be able to predict with over 90% accuracy which couples would stay together and which ones would separate. And the number one predictor in all of their research, and there's a lot of really cool findings that you can dig into this, and they have an institute that's got a lot of good stuff, but the number one finding that they had was that the number one predictor of divorce was contempt. This idea that the other person isn't worth what you're worth. This idea that the other person across from you is less than you in some way, shape, or form. Now, we see this in Gottman's research about marriage, but we also see this throughout the course of human history. The easiest way to hurt, abuse, or take advantage of another person or a group of people is to treat them as subhuman, to make them less than you. This is the way that we have justified all sorts of atrocities and abuses throughout civilization. And it's also present in our interpersonal relationships. And so one of the ways that you can avoid contempt creeping up in your relationships about your differences, which you do have and you will continue to have, is to begin to talk about it, to begin to offer it out into the light with curiosity, not with criticism, to continue a dialogue. And then the last thing that I want us to choose in our relationships is to conform over to change. And more specifically, I want us to choose to conform ourselves towards the person of Christ over trying to change someone else to be more like us. Choose to conform yourself more to the person of Christ than trying to change someone else to be more like you. This is what Martha misses in this moment. She's trying to get married to be more like Martha. And Jesus is right there in her living room with the invitation to become more like him. If we could shift our efforts and our energies away from criticizing the people in our lives, trying to change them to make them more like us because we would like them more if they were, what if we spent our efforts and energies trying to become more like Christ? This is the way that our relationships with others are connected to our relationship with God. The more that we can understand how God made us, the more that it helps us to understand how God made other people. 
and the more it frees us to pursue becoming more like Christ and loving them in that same way. And so the simple way to begin this process in, in your life is just pray the prayer. Say, God, make me more like you and help me let go of making them more like me. God, make me more like you and help me to let go of making them more like me. Because the reality is, is our differences are God-given. Most of them are. And we need all of these differences. Different places in Scripture, it talks about how each part of the body forms the larger collective body. So some of us are ears and elbows and eyes and noses, and that means some of us are armpits and other things. But like one of the things that's important to recognize, what it says in Scripture, is we need all of these differences. We need all of the different ways that God has made each of us different from each other. Because if we conformed everyone into the image of ourselves, then nobody's conformed into the image of Christ. And that's our goal, is to live and be more like Christ. And so choose curiosity over criticism. Choose communication over contempt. And choose to conform to the image of Christ over trying to change other people to be in the image of yourself. If we can get that right, it will begin to change our relationships. It will begin to free our relationships and our, the people in our lives to be more who God created them to be, which then in turn has the effect of allowing them to have confidence in who God created them to be so that they can begin to accept and embrace the way that God created others to be. This is like a pebble in a pond. The ripple effects begin to expand and expand and expand. Imagine what your families would look like if you begin to implement some of these things the ways that your interactions with your children, with your spouse, with your significant other, with your siblings would look different. Or the ways that you could make this a reality in your workplace. Now, I know some of the objections to that. Well, that's not how business gets done, and that's too soft, and you know, people will think you're a wimp, and you've got a choice. Do you want to be more like Christ, or do you want to be more like the image of success in your industry? That's what it means to be a Christian is to live a different kind of life, to reject the norms of society and the world around us and pattern ourselves after the example of Christ. That would be my prayer for us as a church and as a people as we would begin to live in this type of way, that we begin to understand how God made us so it could free us to understand and love the way that God made others. Let me pray for our time together and we'll sing one last song. Gracious God, instead of trying to fix everybody else, Lord, fix us. Help us to be more like you. Help us to understand the nature of our differences, that we don't all have the same values, priorities, and motivations in life. We take in information differently and respond to that information differently. And that's okay. And in fact, it's good. So God, in those moments where those differences create friction, help us to lean in, curious, to understand more about the ways that others are different from us. Help us to begin to communicate about the ways that those differences may create frustration in our life. And ultimately, God, let us spend our energy and effort trying to be more like you. God, that's our prayer this morning, and we ask that you help us live it out as we go from this place. We pray this in your name. Amen.